that ability to succinctly, you know, talk about what you're trying to do uh, is very hard. And it forces you to focus on things that you probably overlook because, you know, you're trying to barrel 5,000 miles an hour. The other thing we see is, you know, some folks, particularly coming out of universities, they think that great technology or great science makes a great business. And it really, that, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a piece of it. It's one of the building blocks, but it doesn't get you there. It doesn't get you a successful company. It doesn't get you an exit. Hi there. Welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs as they fight and grind, stress and push to bring their visions to reality. We're inspired by their incredible stories of success, failure, reworking and trying again. We at Hutchison get to see these stories every day through our work, helping technology and life science companies start up, operate, get funded and exit. We wanna share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur, have an idea that someday you want to start a business or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from an idea to a success or not such a success. Well, this podcast is for you. On the Founder Shares podcast, we hear from founders and investors about their journeys, the keys to their success, the lessons they've learned along the way, and the advice that they would like to share with others. Today's guests are two titans of the entrepreneurial community here in the Triangle. Robbie Hardy, founder and chair of XL Ventures, and our very own Fred Hutchison, founder of Hutchison PLLC. As I said at the outset, our firm focuses on working with startup entrepreneurs, and that can be traced in no small part back to Fred's vision, which as he tells it, can be traced back to 1984, when Fred became involved with the Council for Entrepreneurial Development. And I was the first president of CED, and I enjoyed doing it, but I didn't get any legal work out of it. I just enjoyed being around entrepreneurs. And then a few years into it, I started getting inquiries from mainly software entrepreneurs about helping them with deals. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I sort of made a pivot on my practice and started representing entrepreneurs. As for Robbie, she had climbed the corporate ladder in the 70s and 80s, but she started to get the itch for something more. I became an entrepreneur. I had been 25 years in the corporate world and thought, boy, there's got to be something more than this. You know, even when you're successful in that world, when you just feel like a square peg in a round hole. And so I decided it was time to try instead of complaining for all the things I hated about the corporate world and what I would do differently. Well, I decided that maybe I should do it. So I started a company and Fred was my lawyer, very fortunately. That was back in 1993. And the company was CI Technologies. On the show today, you'll hear all about how Fred and Robbie started working together and the eventual sale of CI Technologies to Seagate. Along the way, we get an amazing view of what it's like to be an entrepreneur and represent young companies and what advice these icons have for us all. To begin, I asked Robbie if she always wanted to start her own company. I knew that I wanted more. I didn't know how it would manifest itself. And so you know, you play the corporate game and you think, hmm, is this all there is? And, you know, I sort of burned myself out, which I'm pretty good at doing, getting all, you know, really intensely involved. And then, uh, so it was one after one of those that I thought, I can't do this corporate thing anymore. And so I, I, I told them I was leaving and they were like, I was a woman in 1993 in a publicly traded company, so they did not want me to leave. 
<laughs> but they said, take a leave, you know, figure out what's wrong with you. And so I did. And, <laughs> and so that's when I started, you know, and I had been doing software on the management side you know, for all that time. And I always thought, you know, if we ever could have just a product instead of chasing the billable hour, you know, we were, I was in the consulting business. And so, you know, the way you got rewarded was how many hours you're to you and your team and whatever could bill. And mm -hmm. so there was no leverage and it just didn't make sense to me. So I always wanted something to leverage because we build these products, you know, for other companies. And so I had seen some holes that I thought we kept building over and over again. And so that was what the first product was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Tell me about the, the transition from kind of corporate to running your own company and, and how you got started. <laughs> well, you know, you come, I came from the corporate world back when you had staff, you know, I had a secretary, I had, you know, I didn't do anything. And so, you know, I get on an airplane and I went to meetings. And, and so I remember clearly, I mean, I, when I was trying to find space and I was, you know, nervous about hot space because, of course, there were no incubators or any kind of space like that then. And so I needed to hire programmers. So I was hiring programmers at Brugger's Bagel Bakery uh, in Chapel Hill. Why anybody came to work for me when I didn't have an office, I've never to this day, I'll never know. And then when I did finally rent space, I can remember standing in the empty space on East Town Drive in Chapel Hill. The building's probably gone now. I was walking around and I saw an empty trash can and above the trash can in the office I was gonna use, and it was a small office, it was not a lot of space anyway. And I was looking down at the trash can and I thought, wow, I didn't ask the landlord, what do I do with trash? And then I looked up and there was a mirror and I thought, you better figure it out because there's nobody else here. So it was this really pivotal moment for me as an entrepreneur that I just needed to be able to do whatever needed to be done. And so the trash can and the mirror were sort of how I shifted from having everything done for me to doing it myself. Yeah. So what is the key then you, once you realize that, you know, this is all on you and, and you have to do all these things yourself. So what's the key to then kind of taking that next step and really starting to grow the business? it's a mistake to think that you have to do everything. I mean, that, I mean, that's, I didn't do everything, obviously, you, you know, you do, and the, particularly in the early days, you do what needs to be done. I'm a fan of bootstrapping. And so, you know, it's, you, you take it to a point where instead of hiring somebody to do, you know, some of the administrative stuff, you know, you just do it yourself. And it's good for you because you, you learn a lot about the business and you learn a lot about what you're asking other people to do. So I think that's, you know, but knowing when it's time to hire and delegate is really, really key because a lot of founders, and I was one of them, wait a long time. And I waited too long. I should have hired an administrator months before I did. When I finally hired this woman, young woman part-time, it was like, I thought, wow, you know, it just made so much difference. And then you can leverage other things. So I'm all about leverage. So it's, you know, paying attention to being willing to do anything, being willing to take up the trash if that's what needs to be done, being willing to go get the pizza, being willing to do those things, but knowing when it's time to pass it on to somebody else and then delegating it, you know, the authority and the responsibility to that person. So now you, you and Fred both work together, I guess, as, as part of this company or as part of this first startup. Is that correct? Yeah, Fred was, I, yeah, I felt like, you know, Fred was part of the team. I mean, I always felt like he and Tim were as integral as the developers. So Fred, can you talk to, about that a little bit about, you know, what it's like to be kind of an outside counsel, but really trying to integrate yourself into the business team? 
Well, it, it really depends on the entrepreneur you're working with. Robbie was great to work with and was very inclusive. She was very and, demanding. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and if there were, you know, you got included on strategic decisions, not that we had a vote per se, but at least Robbie would ask, what do you think? Should we do this or not do this? You know, our job is to advise entrepreneurs about risk. And, you know, there you can go A or you can go B, but here's the risk with A and here's the risk with B and here are the rewards and they, they make the decision. But as a lawyer, an entrepreneurial lawyer, you're not doing your job unless you give your client some advice. You know, some, sometimes it's legal, sometimes it's business, sometimes it's just common sense advice, but that's what you're supposed to do. Unlike what they tell you in law school, which is you never give business <laughs> advice. You're there just to give legal advice. Yeah, I mean, the, it, what you don't realize, I think, at first when you're working as an entrepreneur and working with your lawyer and accountant is, you know, these, you, you know, Fred had, I wasn't his only client, even though, of course, I thought I was. But I mean, so he had all this other experience. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the beauty of it when you have the service provider, so to speak, partners they just have experience that I think is pretty valuable. I mean, obviously you want them for their legal advice, but they've seen a lot of things happen. So in strategic discussions, bouncing ideas off of them is I think really valuable. Now, I understand that that first startup eventually led to an exit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Mm -hmm. It did. I, it, we did get, we were, you know, we bootstrapped probably too long, but I had investors and then we were getting ready to go for a venture round and we had an offer from Seagate to buy the company. They wanted to be treated the same way as software. They didn't like how Wall Street treated hardware. So they wanted the same multiplier that software companies got and still do get. Anyway, so he was in this, you know, they had a billion dollars in cash. They were just out buying companies and we had a product that they needed to fulfill a suite that they were putting together. And, and so we had been on having conversations and Fred had been in the conversations, not with them, but with me. And we were figuring it out. And so it was time to go have another meeting with them. And I did not ask Fred to join because I was being tight. I was trying to be, I was being so, you know, financially responsible, which was really irresponsible. So I went on this, you know, journey to California to talk to kind of finalize this deal by myself. Uh, my CTO was with me, but he was going to be talking to their technology people. And, you know, I, you know, having been in the corporate world, I knew having somebody there to have the pause in a negotiation. I'd done other things, you know, where Fred and I could go outside the room and then come back in. And I didn't have that. And so I have no idea why I'm flying out there starting to freak out that, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're doing this, you don't stop to think till you're on the plane. So I'm like, well, I've got to figure out something. So I have no idea to this day why, but, and Fred, and we know this is the truth, but we have the, the proof of it, but I thought I should get a Ouija board. Now, most people don't even know what a Ouija board is. So I land too late and the next morning I get up and I go to a Toys R Us back and I walk and I ask them, do you have a Ouija board? Because of course I'm tight on time and they're like, no. <laughs> but so I, you know, so I look around. So if somebody says to me, the one, and back in the day when they would, you know, and they say, well, we have an eight ball. I was like, perfect. Why? I have no idea. So I unwrap the eight ball. I put it in my briefcase. I go into the meeting. We're talking back and forth and we're still pretty far apart and they throw a number out 
And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. And I reach down my briefcase on the floor and I pulled up this eight ball and I said, well, let's see what she thinks. At that moment, the CEO, Al Shugart, grabs my hand and takes me to his office. And I'm thinking, this is not good. And in his office, he has like a giant eight ball. He has like a swarmy, swarmy holding this beautiful, I mean, it's a lab. I have this, you know, $2 plastic eight ball and he has this. And so we go through this thing and we go back and forth and we ask, we each ask our eight ball, is this a good deal? And it, you know, it came back with, you know, not enough information or whatever. <laughs> and we all laughed and I was about to throw up and they said, well, anybody that's got the balls, they didn't say that, but um, cause I was a woman and it was 1995. And they said, you know, my bottom price and their top price. And so the deal was made. And so the eight ball lives on. Do you have yours, Fred? I went to the office this morning. I got it. You see that? <laughs> Look at this. Oh, you got yours? Yeah, okay. I won't yep. Yeah, there it yeah. is. Yeah. And it was really a bad decision. I mean, I was not being, you know, fiduciary responsible to not have Fred in this deal. But when did you first learn about the eight ball? Oh, she gave these as tokens. Well, I the, called uh, him and I mean, I well, told him. I think I, to I told you. But yeah, that was the tomb. That was our tombstone or whatever you call them at, yeah. at the deal dinner. Fantastic. Certainly memorable. Certainly much more memorable than just the, you know, the glass tombstone that most people yes. get, right? But it, yes. And so, it, the, I mean, yeah, we, I don't want people listening to think that this was, you know, a brilliant idea. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, right place, right time. And it worked. I was going to say, do you ever again? stop to wonder what would happen if the Toys R Us had the Ouija board? <laughs> well, and the funny, yeah, I'm like, would I have known how to use it? I, yeah, I, I don't know. So now after your exit, you know, I understand that you've, you've really kind of plugged in and really mentored a number of other startups as, as, or other, you know, people in the entrepreneurial com community. Can you talk about what made you want to kind of give back in that way? Well, you know, I mean, Fred helped me. They, you know, people invested in me and, you know, doing that first money raise and all that. I mean, it's hard, but it allowed, you know, me to build what I wanted to do and, you know, fulfill a lot of people's, you know, sort of dreams and aspirations. So I wanted to pay it forward. And Fred introduced me, I think this is right, Fred. He introduced me to another client who was raising money, or maybe it wasn't another client, maybe somebody, I don't remember. And so I made my first investment in that company. He didn't, he just made the introduction. He wasn't recommending it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning. And it's funny what you think you know, because I had raised money. So you think you kind of understand what both sides of the desk were, but you know, I, you know, I can remember asking going, what are piggyback rights? I mean, it's like, who would even use those terms? Anyway, so it was that kind of stuff. So, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I wanted to try it. So I did. And so I've been doing that since 1995. And played that role as, a, as an investor and a mentor uh, since that time? Yeah, I mean, I've sat, you know, I've kind of sat on all sides of the entrepreneurial desk. You know, I was an investor and sat on boards and raised a, uh, an angel fund mm -hmm. in 2000. It was supposed to be the all women. Well, there were, I could only fix at that time. I was a little naive. Yeah, so that was, so I've been doing angel investing full time. But So you, you both have worked with a number of different entrepreneurs over the years. Are there common themes that you see as to what makes a successful business leader or what is key to somebody really being able to thrive? Uh, yeah, I mean, usually, I mean, they're visionaries. They see how things can be done differently than what's being done currently. I mean, they always are, they're disruptors. 
in the economy. I mean, the key thing I usually see is perseverance. And Robbie, of course, has got that in spades. I mean, it's just you've got to you got to stick with it. Uh, and because you're going to hear a lot of no's, a lot of people are going to turn you down for funding, and you've just got to plow ahead. Perseverance and persistence are the key. I'd say the other thing is just someone willing to listen. I can think of Tim Huntley at Ganymede Robbie, and Tim was a great listener. He'd come out of IBM and uh, with three, I think three or four other founders, but he was the CEO, and he he just soaked up things like a sponge. He would talk to people and sort of pick up things from different folks and mold it into a strategy. But being a good listener is important. You can't do it on your own and you don't know it all and you might as well listen to other people that have been there before you. No, I agree and, and Tim's a great example. People who are willing to ask questions, you know, say they don't know, put their sort of you know, park their ego. I mean, you, you have to have an ego to do this, but you don't need to bronze it. And I feel like when people try to, you know, it's like, we don't, that's not what we need. And it's when, you know, entrepreneurs have a vision, but the ability to articulate, I think is really, really key. When entrepreneurs can't tell you briefly what it is they're doing or what it, their vision is, I mean, it, you start to glaze over or they start telling you how you're going to do it. And you're like, so, you know, practicing, it's the hardest thing to do. I, I mean, I think one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur, I mean, they think raising money and all those things, but being able to have that, what we call an elevator pitch, but that ability to succinctly, you know, talk about what you're trying to do uh, is very hard. And it forces you to focus on things that you probably overlook because, you know, you're trying to barrel 5,000 miles an hour and, you know, stopping and being able to do that and breaking it down into pieces that are digestible to the audience, I think is really valuable. The other thing we see is, you know, some folks, particularly coming out of universities, they think that great technology or great science makes a great business. And it really, that, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a piece of it. It's one of the building blocks, but it doesn't get you there. It doesn't get you a successful company. It doesn't get you an exit. No, I so, mean, you have to be solving a problem. You've got to be, there's got to be a reason for it. You know, it's, yeah. it's the, if they build it, will they come kind of uh, field of dreams. Uh, yeah. It doesn't really work in this space. So on a related note, how important is the kind of the team that the entrepreneur surrounds themselves with and kind of creating a successful company? And how do you see, especially young entrepreneurs kind of navigate from working either with people they know and their associates or their college roommates to, you know, people who can actually move the business forward? How important is that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hugely important, needless to say. I mean, uh, it's pretty easy to deal with one or two or three people. And going back to Ravi's point earlier, you know, you can't do it all. At some point, you got to delegate. And as as you grow, you got to bring in people that have expertise. I mean, the CEO doesn't need to know how the 401k retirement plan works. You know, they need to turn that over to someone. Ravi was talking about having um, that administrative assistant. Uh, I can think of one woman, Claudia Black, who's done that a lot throughout the track, a number of companies. And she just, she's a key person. She lets the engineers, the scientists, the software designers, technicians focus on what they do well. And then she sort of takes, you know, I'm going to take care of your travel. We're going to get the meeting booked. I'm talking to the lawyers. I'm talking to the accountants. By the way, I put coffee on this morning. It's ready to go. And they're incredibly important. Uh, in running a business. So I, I think that's transition. I think some people don't make it. 
And oftentimes with a company we've seen with our clients is a startup CEO, and then there's sort of the CEO that can get you through a little funding. And then there's the CEO that sort of can take you to an exit. It's, it's pretty rare you can get, like Robbie, you can be the, the founder and the CEO at an exit. Most of the time, if it grows, there'll be someone else in there. It's just, it's the way it is. Yeah. And hire, you know, being friends sometimes, I mean, it's, I think that you have to be careful. I mean, you know, there's, you've got to figure out what's your strength, what's their strength, you know, and figure out does, does this mean, you know, you, you have a whole, you have something you're trying to complete here and what are all the elements? And, you know, you see a lot of friendships ruined in uh, startups because, you know, it was, they were having fun and it's fun till it's not, um, mm-hmm. you know, the highs are high, the lows are low and everybody's got to be rowing in the same direction. And so that's, you know, the, the chemistry between people and the skill sets where you do this, I do this, you, you know, and, and that kind of piece, it really makes a big difference. And that's what makes a successful team. So, Robbie, I wanted to go back to something that Fred said. He, he talked about how it's rare to find a CEO who's both good at kind of starting the company and then seeing it through to that exit. Are there aspects about your experience or just kind of your personality that, that made you suited for that? Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, we were, we were only two years. So let's, you know, give me too many kudos here in my ability to run a, you know, hundred billion dollar company. I think for me, partly is I had worked in the corporate world, in the consulting world. So I had seen a lot, you know, I'd worked in the company. So I'd seen M&A deals. I had seen, you know, I'd worked with a lot of big companies. So I had seen, and of course, what in my mind, it was like, well, this isn't how you do it. But through that, you learn a lot. And so I think that was very helpful of how you handle yourself, how you, and to be other, not to bring this up, but, and also I had been a woman and kind of always the only woman room. And so you learn to let things roll off you in a different way, because part of making it through is that, as Fred talked about before, and, and the ability to listen. And I think what happens is, you know, a lot of CEOs lose the ability to listen and then be able to, you know, and seek out and be collaborative. They feel like, you know, it becomes, you know, their baby and Mm -hmm. it's not. And if you don't, if you're not a listener, the investors quickly figure that out (laughs) and you're not getting money. (laughs) It's, It's one of the red flags for any, any major investor out there. So now, Robbie, when you were founding your company, were there other, you know, women CEOs that you knew or that you had networked with before or was? Oh, you know, I was coming out of, so this was in 1993, and I was coming out of the corporate world where I, you know, there were more women around me, but I was still almost always the only woman in the room, you know, Mm -hmm. or at the table. So I did not personally know any other women CEOs. But I was so naive. I mean, I thought, I can do this, you know. You know, I just didn't know any better. And I think that's, and it's that entrepreneurial you. It's like, yeah, I can, you know, if I can see this, then I can do it. And if you really thought about being the CEO of a company, you know, other than you like that title beside your name, it is, yeah, I think it would be daunting. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but I don't think you start out in that with that uh, and I, I guess a part of my th- thinking was, you know, did you did you have people that you were looking up to as as far as role models, or were you aware that you were being a trailblazer, or were you just doing what no, you wanted to do? No, I wasn't aware I was a trailblazer until <laughs> after the company exit, and Fred may remember this. And 
I used to complain about it. It's people would say, what does it feel like to be a female, successful female CEO of a technology company? I'm like, I don't know. Does it feel like being a man? I don't know anything other than who I am, you know? So it was just to me, like, and I don't think people were, some people were trying to be mean, but most people were just, you know, curious. And Mm -hmm. you didn't, I don't think when you're in it, you think about that or at least, you know, you're too busy. I mean, when you've got a software company and you're trying to grow it and all that, you don't have time to think about those things. You know, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, 25 years ago, there just were not many women CEOs. I can think of one in the life science space, uh, Kay Wagner formed Icogen. Yeah, but that she, that she was early. I mean, she, yeah, that she was. She was, yeah. And she raised a lot of venture capital, but she had a tough time because, Unfortunately, venture capital in those days, and still is, and still today, updated by white males. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. Well, I mean, that leads right into it. So, I mean, there's a lot that's been discussed recently, kind of about representation issues, both with regard to women and racial minorities in the venture and entrepreneurial communities. So, I'd be interested in your thoughts, from both of you, about how do we change this? How do we get more voices to the table? Um, What's holding us back right now? I was on a call last night, Ideal Fund which is here in the Triangle a Tech Focus Fund. They had a call with their limited partners and they discussed that and they conceded, you're right, this is a white male dominated industry, venture capital. And unfortunately, people tend to invest in folks they're comfortable with and familiar with, which means you end up investing in white male CEOs. And they just say, we're gonna have to look harder. We're, we're, you know, there are deals out there, they had just, invested in a company, a media company led by a very dynamic Hispanic woman. They recognize they've got to look harder, that their deal's there. I've heard it said that Durham and Atlanta are two of the five largest black entrepreneurial centers in the country. And you think about how much money is not going into those companies. The other statistic I heard is women-led entrepreneurial companies are only getting 2% of the venture money that's invested each year. I mean, a minuscule amount. Mm-hmm. So something has to change. I think uh, the funds are beginning to recognize that. But you've got to change the complexion of what the funds are, too. You know, they've got to be made up of a diverse and inclusive group of investors. So uh, that's not the sole solution, but it's certainly, certainly one. Well, you know, I'm obviously um, very passionate about this subject. Um, back in 2000, when I was starting the Angel Fund, and I really thought that I was sort of tired of being the only woman or one of a handful. And I really thought that, that it, was, it would happen. And if she, I, there just weren't enough women here. I didn't have a big enough network or whatever. And so from 2000 until last year when we launched Excel, I had been you know, focused on this whole issue of why are there not, why do women only get such a small amount of the investor pot? And I think my salute or my answer is, is that women have to, women, you know, women of color, all women need to take care of this problem. And one of the passions of mine and one of the missions of Excel is to increase the number of women angel investors. And until we have enough women angel investors, so for example, half of 1% of high net worth women are venture investors, 30% of men. 
Hmm. So we have this huge issue. So how do we solve that? Why is it that women are not angel investors? I think women, their risk tolerance is lower. Um, they want to understand what they're doing. They need to have more education about it. Men do too, but they'll just jump in. And, I mean, they don't know any more than anybody else, mm -hmm. but they're more willing to jump in and do that. So, you know, increasing the number of people of color and women investors is key to that. And, you know, to the idea fund issue, when women look at, you know, you go look at a venture capital website and it's all white men, why would you even go? I mean, you know, because you know, you feel like you're, the strikes are against you now. I'd probably go anyway, but, you know, not everybody will. And so they've got to, you know, increase the diversity of their teams and mm. they find that very hard to do. And I think there's some implicit, there's something there that doesn't quite make sense because there are a lot of smart women, there are a lot of smart people of color that could be there. And so there is this clubbish thing. I don't know what goes on, but mm -hmm. we need to change that. So I'm on a mission, big mission to increase the number of women angel investors here and all around the country. So Excel is just kind of a, you know, a little piece of that, but that's what it's all about. So with Excel, are you, do you target kind of women who are outside of the entrepreneurial community already to, to kind of expand that network? And yeah, expand? because you can't just rely on the entrepreneurial community. Right. I mean, because we just, because we don't, because women only get 2.2% of the money, then we don't have as many women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So you've got to go outside there. So in Excel, we, we invite women who have not, you know, who are accredited, but are not part of the entrepreneurial community. So there is a bigger learning curve because they really, I mean, some of people, you know, I've given talks and people are like, now what's an angel, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to do. So I think, I think we can whine that it doesn't happen or we can do something about it. And so for Excel, have you started interviewing companies? Are you starting to invest or are you still kind of? Yeah. So we have, we're actually in the process of our first investment. We started, I mean, in, we put it together in 2019. We launched it late last year. And our last in-person meeting was in February. So mm -hmm. we went virtual. And figuring out, you know, we're doing straight debt. We're not doing your typical angel investing or venture investing. We're not doing equity. It's partially because it's more straightforward. We don't have to deal with valuation. There's a lot of issues that go away if you just deal with debt. The data tells you that the first $50,000 that for women is the hardest money for them to get. And when you see these women, and I don't know if Fred agrees with this or not, or, or may, and it may be minorities in general, even the women aren't minorities because we're the largest part of the population. However, is that when they come for the money, they are much further along. I mean, they have figured out how to do more with less because they've had to. So that's another mm -hmm. interesting piece. So Excel is, you know, we're trying to get them going, you know, they're, there will be Excel is designed sort of to go to the, from the crawl, walk, run stage. And so will it get into equity? Will it just do revenue share? I mean, what's the right answer? Chasing the unicorns isn't really, I don't think that gets us where we need to go to increase the world, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. And do you think part of that, of you talk about women owned businesses being further along when they start to apply for money, is that part of this symptom of, having to be better in order to get access to that 2% of capital? I, I, I believe so. Absolutely. You, yeah. I mean, it's in a lot of things and their women are, you know, if they decide they want to do it, then they're not going to let something get in their way like money. So they'll find another way. 
And so there's that part of it. I think there's a lot of things that contribute to it. Now that's not obviously a hundred percent true. I've certainly had worked with or talked to women entrepreneurs who have just an idea and no clue anyway, and are out there raising money. But the majority that I see and what we see come into Excel, it's like, wow, you know, they've done a lot with very little. Right now, Excel only does North Carolina. We may expand that since now we're in this virtual world. We never actually see anybody, actually touch anybody. So we'll see. We're working on what 2021 Excel will look like. So I don't know the answer to this. You know, what does it look like in our kind of business schools and in undergrad? Do we see more kind of women-led business? Are we incubating at that young of an age for women-owned businesses? Or is it only at once they get out kind of into the workplace that we're starting to encourage these types of businesses to be formed. And, and I'm just wondering, again, kind of this broader question of how we are bringing more people to the table. Do we start younger or is that already starting to fix itself? I don't know. I'm, I'm not seeing many women entrepreneurs right out of the university. These days, I do a lot more probably in the life science area. And the women we see have been in industry. They've been with a pharma company or a medical device company before they start the company. So they've got, they've had some big corporation experience. And so they're further along, but I don't know, Robbie, what do you think? Are you well, seeing I think it? when I think about, you know, launch Chapel Hill or any of these, you know, uh, university incubators, it depends on the cohort. I've seen cohorts that have been mostly women. And then I've seen other cohorts that have been mostly men, but yeah, a lot of the incubators, the big incubators are, run by white men. So there's some of that, but there's also a lot of women in that space. So this may be a related topic, but what do you both see as kind of the biggest challenges and opportunities for kind of our local startup community for, you know, the next one year and then maybe the five years out? The next one year, the challenges of recovering from COVID and getting back to a normal economy is probably something that um, affects everyone. But, you know, the good news, we're, we're still seeing people raising money. M&A deals have slowed down. There are fewer exits. But you know, the venture funds that have raised money have still got to spend it. They're not going to sit on it. And historically, the venture funds that have invested in down economic cycles have had their best returns on those investments. So, you know, I, I think for companies looking to grow and be backed by angels and venture capitals, I see that continuing. I think with better stability in the economy and in the stock market, we'll see a lot of angel investors jump back in. You know, I think one of the things that we've seen with COVID, and I'm, you know, I'm always, uh, my cup is always half full. So, I mean, I think you see people who have pivoted and innovated to keep their company going. And hopefully without, you know, sometimes changing completely to survive, but, you know, finding other ways to go about delivering their goods or services or product. And so I think this is, I mean, this is very telling too. It's kind of a, maybe not fair, but there is sort of a weeding out process that's occurring of those who can innovate and who can look at, okay, instead of sort of sucking their thumb or freaking out, they start saying, what can I do? How do I, do, you know, and being willing to ask. I do these one-on-one -on -one sessions and, you know, and the people sign up for it. And, you know, I love it when they like, I was supposed to be doing this, but obviously that's not going to happen. But so now I'm thinking about doing this. It's kind of in the same, what do you think? And so it's that, you know, kind of thinking that I think is just, pretty impressive. And I think we, and, and, and it, it makes them stand out. So I think as we go through and come out the other side at some day, 
then I think, you know, it's those who have really innovated have, or, you know, found a way to, you know, get their, the job done are the ones who will survive and thrive. So then after we get past COVID, after that, you know, we're looking a little bit further out, you know, what do you see five years from now? Is there something, some big drag on, on the entrepreneurial community here that we can overcome or do you see just us continuing to grow? I think we'll continue to grow. There's a lot going on here. I mean, there really is. I think of one industry alone, ag tech. This is going to be, a, it is, and will continue to be a major hub in the U.S. for ag tech. We've got some big companies here. We've got an ag tech incubator. We've got the plant science department at NC State, the forestry school at NC State. Ag tech is, is going to be a big part of the economy going forward as we try to figure out how to feed the world. So I, I think that's one area. I mean, we're the center of the hub for the uh, CRO industry worldwide. We've got more big ones here than anywhere else in the world. I think the technology practice will continue. The technology companies, the life science. I mean, we're becoming a huge hub for gene therapy. So I, I think things are good. I, I wish we had more venture capital based here, but you know, the good entrepreneurs can get on a plane or get on a Zoom call and talk to people all over the country, all over the world. And the really good ones will raise money, regardless of whether there's a lot of venture money in North Carolina or not. I think the triangle will grow. I mean, for me in five years, I wanna you know, see this large number, a number I can't count of women angel investors and venture investors and you know, seeing that change. And I think that this world we're in today, this Zoom that we're on, you know, there's t- technology coming and being, of course, that's what a lot of investors are investing in as the next Zoom. But there's a lot of time and money and energy being and being dedicated to make the world smaller so that getting on an airplane isn't as important. Borden, you know, you won't have to travel as much. So as we shrink the world and the access to lots of things becomes easier and you go when you need to go, but you don't have to go, you know, the way that we had been prior to this. I think will be very beneficial for the triangle because I think we have a lot of people here. So the money is easier to come by. I shouldn't say easier because money is never easy to come by, but you'll have access to money that you might not otherwise and getting on a plane is expensive and yada, yada, yada. So I think that there's a lot of innovation in that space. And of course I still, you know, my heart is still in software. I look at, I look at lots of things, but I, I can see a lot of interesting things coming down the line that will make, our lives easier not at first we'll be like what is this but it will make it you know easier to to get together with people from around the world when we launched excel i mean it was insane i had i was had gotten on a plane after we the press release went out and i landed in portland oregon i had 1250 emails and they were from all over the world you know and people in milan and in France and in Russia and all of us, you know, going, let's do deals together. So it was just sort of this funny thing. And so I think we'll start to see, not to that extent, but I think we'll start to see that globalization that we talk about come to be as we're able to do this from anywhere. So, you know, we are the the Founder Shares podcast. And so I always like to ask our guests, if you could provide one piece of advice to a new founder or somebody who's thinking about starting a business, what would be that advice that you'd share with them? Robbie, let's start with you. Boy, one piece of, can it be a long piece? Oh, of <laughs> it could be six pieces of advice. I asked for well, one. Well, I think it's, I think it's, you know, 
you know, do your homework. This doesn't happen overnight. You know, really, you know, dig in, be willing to ask lots of people lots of questions, listen to what people tell you and what you learn, figure out, you know, how to dissect and analyze and parse through the data that you receive so that you don't necessarily fall in love with something before it actually makes sense. Learn how to tell your story. Don't bronze your ego, you know, get it out there. And you, know, you need to have it to stand out there and do it, but you need a lot of people. It is not a solo journey. And anybody who says I did it, you know, there's no I in team. I hate that saying, but it's true. Do, knowing your stuff, being able to listen and not bronzing your ego, I think are pretty key for me. Yeah, and I would say do something you're passionate about. I mean, we found the people successful over the years are really passionate. They believe in what they're doing. They believe it's going to make a difference. Sure, they'd like to make some money, but that's not why they started it. Back in the dot-com era, I don't know, 70% of the people were doing something, were doing it just for the money, for a quick hit, you know, thinking they could start a company, flip it in a year, and then they moved to Hawaii. But the ones we see now, I mean, it's something, they, they've got a vision, they're passionate about it, they love what they're doing. I, I think those are the ones that really are going to be the most successful. Yeah, I, I mean, I, could, I second that. I mean, I don't know any successful entrepreneur that started it for the money. I mean, it's because there's a passion, there's something they want to do, there's something they want to do. And it's a long journey from starting it to when there might be money. So you can't get up every day and push through the highs and the lows of starting a company when you're focused on a payday, you know, 10 years in the road. Well, thank you both for coming on. I really appreciate it. That was Robbie Hardy and Fred Hutchison. It was a thrill for me to have a chance to speak with them together and we're so grateful they made the time. You can find more on Robbie by going to RobbieHardy.com. That's R-O-B-B-I-E-H-A-R-D-Y.com or XL Ventures. That's X-E-L-L-E Ventures.com. And of course, we'll put those links into the show notes. Thank you all for listening. If you like the show, we'd be thrilled if you left us a rating and a review. That helps others hear these startup stories, and we may even share your review in an upcoming episode. And if you're a founder or business owner in need of legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting us at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. We have the capacity to help you with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy, and we're ready to support you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence, and I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. Look forward to talking to you next time on the Founder Shares podcast.